The reading this evening is taken from Acts 2, verses 22 to 24, and then 36 to 41. And it's to be found on page 1093 in the Church Bibles. <clears throat> Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep his, its hold on him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Brilliant, thanks very much, Sue. That video, incidentally, is just a little sort of snapshot. There's a 15-minute video of which that's a part, which you can find on the Diocese of Guildford website or on YouTube, if you type in Transforming Church uh, onto YouTube. And uh, it's really good. It's been put together really well. About seven or eight different stories around the Diocese of the Church really making a transforming difference in the lives of people. So let's, uh, let's pray for God to speak to us now through his word. Father, we thank you so much for this great uh, speech of Peter and for the day of Pentecost, for the amazing fruitfulness of that day. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through this scripture tonight, that you would warm our hearts, that you would give us a, a new boldness, a new confidence in our sharing of our faith. And we pray, Lord, that you would transform our lives more and more, that we might have a transforming impact on the world around us. For Jesus' sake, amen. So Peter was a man transformed that day. In fact, we might call him a man possessed, a man possessed by the Holy Spirit of the living God. His track record, as you know, up to this point had been pretty hit and miss. He was a rough Galilean fisherman. He had only a very basic level of education and he had a tendency to brag. He, uh, his actions often didn't match his rhetoric. As a competitor on The Apprentice, I reckon that Peter would have survived till about week five, or maybe week six, as weaker candidates dropped out one by one. But his habit of messing things up at key moments, and especially, of course, his denial of his Lord when the cock crowed, 
would have found him instantly fired had the Lord Jesus, God forbid, had more in common with the Lord Sugar. <laughs> and yet Jesus had seen something in Peter that I guess almost everyone else would have missed, a willingness to take risks, a wholeheartedness, a boldness, a passion, a courage, a desire, above all, to stick as close to Jesus as he possibly could. It was not just Peter who was the first to acknowledge who Jesus really was. You are the Christ, he had said. Do you remember? The son of the living God. It's also Peter who had stepped out of the boat and come towards Jesus on the water. It was Peter who had followed Jesus as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And Peter who was the first of the apostles to rush into the empty tomb where angels feared to tread. Peter was also there on significant occasions like the Mount of Transfiguration and like the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, not all of those incidents presented Peter at his best. As I said, he tended to mess things up. I don't suppose all of them will be obvious contenders in a compilation of Peter's greatest hits. But they did demonstrate how this man acted as Jesus' closest follower always trying to get closer to Jesus, even if that meant walking on water, even if that meant going into a place of danger, into the high priest's courtyard. He followed him onto the water, up the mountain, into the garden, up to the courtroom, into the tomb. Follow me, Jesus had said to Peter and his brother Andrew when he first called them, and I will make you fishers of people. He had seen Peter's... Uh, potential as an evangelist, as an apostle and leader. You are Peter, he said on a later occasion, and on this rock I will build my church. And although Peter's behavior for a while had been much more rocky than rock-like, Pentecost was the day when it all came together, when Jesus' extraordinary faith in this apparently unremarkable man was shown to be entirely 100% justified. For Pentecost, both the coming of the Holy Spirit and the boldness of Peter's preaching and the response of the crowds changed everything. It's not perhaps that Peter's sermon itself would have won any preaching competitions, at least not in Luke's truncated version. It mostly consisted of Peter telling the story of Jesus and pulling out some verses from the Old Testament which helped to show how important and significant that story was. There weren't even any jokes. It's true that the apostle was clever to quote from King David because, of course, he was preaching in the middle of Jerusalem, the city of David. It's true that his message was direct and punchy and challenging and quite simple. But in many ways, Peter's words were very ordinary words, and if we were to be really critical about them, we'd have to say that he hadn't quite worked out his theology of the cross. And yet think of that occasion. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who had last been in Jerusalem at the Passover festival just 50 days before, where they'd heard about or witnessed or even contributed to the execution of Jesus of Nazareth as part of the crowd who'd been shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. And think of the coming of the Holy Spirit just 50 days later with a sound like the blowing of a violent wind and in tongues of fire. And now add Peter to the equation. This man transformed 
this man possessed. For the apostle wasn't talking about ancient history when he spoke about Jesus. He was talking about events that had taken place less than two months before, to which both he and many of his hearers had had a ringside seat. You saw this man, he was saying to his audience. You saw the amazing miracles you did. You saw his character. You saw who he mixed with. You heard him as well, that astonishing teaching. You watched him like I did. And yet just 50 days ago, you were baying for his blood and cheering on his executioners. But God had a purpose in that, just as King David told you even a thousand years before. God allowed him to be killed so that he might conquer death. And then the punchline of the sermon, delivered with Peter's northern bluntness and honesty. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, it could have all gone horribly wrong at that point. The crowds could have taken offense. They could have lynched Peter. Such was the volatility of the occasion. But instead, it went completely the other way. Instead, we are told they were cut to the heart and cried out, brothers, to the apostles, brothers, what should we do? So now it was time for God's transforming work that had taken place in Peter's life to be poured out on many, many others. As Peter the apostle, Peter the evangelist, boldly spelt out their need to repent, that is to turn away from their self-centered lives, to be baptized in the water, and to receive the Holy Spirit. Some months before, Peter and his friends had found themselves pulling in the most miraculous catch of fish they could ever remember, taking them out of the water and bringing them onto land. But now this fisher of fish had indeed become a fisher of people, lowering them under the water, then lifting them up again as 3,000 people repented that day and were baptized and received the Holy Spirit going under the water, then out of it once again, dying to one kind of life and rising up to a new kind of life. It's hard to think of a more powerful image of the transforming work of God's Spirit than the sight of those bayers for Christ's blood, receiving his forgiveness, then coming out of the water and standing tall as sons and daughters of the King of Kings. For transformation is what this thing is all about. It's at the heart of the Christian gospel. The promise of transformation is what gets me out of bed in the morning, and perhaps the rest of us too, in the hope and the expectation that today, once again, I might see signs of God's transforming power at work in the midst of a sometimes confusing and pretty messy world. I can't get especially worked up about the church as an institution, though I do my best. There are aspects of my life as a bishop that I could very easily take or leave. But it's when I meet transformed and transforming people, men and women, young people and children, in whom and through whom God's Holy Spirit is clearly at work, that I'm encouraged and cheered and reminded what this thing is really all about. I think of just last Thursday, for example and of a baptism and confirmation service which took place just up the road at Emmanuel Church in Stoughton. Your worship pastor, 
Josh was there, as you'll know if you follow him on Twitter, where he took a very fetching selfie of us both. But I also met Joyce, a lady in her 70s, bereaved last year, who had come to a living faith in Jesus just in the last few months. And I met Stephen and Jackie, an ex-army couple whose journey to faith had taken them from a place of complete spiritual emptiness into one of glorious fulfillment. And I met Ashley, for whom the tragedy of a stillborn baby had led him to the joy of both finding Christ and now fathering a new child. And I met Jana, Jana, who was brought up in communist Czechoslovakia, but had come to a living faith through the gently, gentle, godly example of Father Andrew Norman and his flock at St. Nicholas's. And Janice, whose serious pain from her spina bifida had completely gone in response to prayer. And Emma, Laura, and Annie, whose faces shone as they spoke of how they'd gone on the Alpha course and everything had made sense and it had begun to turn their lives around. And some gifted teenagers as well, some half a dozen of them, seriously standing up and confessing their faith in Jesus Christ. In our family life as well, we've seen something of this transformation, especially in the story of one of our children whose teenage years were lost and difficult and whose life had been completely, uh, so completely turned around that a lad who left school with no real qualifications and a bunch of rather dodgy friends is now happy, fulfilled, and in his second year of a doctorate at Oxford University. And whole churches like this one can make and are making a transformative difference to the lives of many people. We, some of those people are here today. Perhaps we're all here today because of the transformative influence that this church family has made upon us. Where they catch the vision of proclaiming the good news of Jesus and living out the good news of Jesus. There's no point doing one without the other. If we are living it out but not proclaiming it, how will people come to know it? If we are proclaiming it but not living it out, then we'll be written off quite rightly as frauds and hypocrites. It's when the two come together that God really works. Because we follow the one who came to preach good news to the poor and freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, preaching good news, being good news. Every time we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, here, as it is in heaven. We are praying for the transforming work of God to turn our communities, our families, our streets, our church more into uh, what it's like in heaven, what it's like in the presence of our Lord and Saviour. And of course, such good news stories, they're not the whole story. No family is perfect, no church is perfect, and all our lives have their share of disappointments, discouragements, frustrations, setbacks. Sometimes you might feel my life has more than its fair share of discouragements and setbacks. Some of us may be feeling that tonight. Jesus put it like this. He was very realistic. He said, in this world, you will have many troubles. He didn't say it's all going to be wonderful. He said, in this world, you're going to have many troubles. He's not wrong there, we might say. But even the bad things that we go through, even the real challenges, the biggest challenges, can be transformative in themselves. They teach us lessons about what it is really to trust, what it is really to pray, what it is when it's not right for us to be alone, but when we need a group of praying friends around us. It's humbling, but it's not bad to be humbled. 
It draws, they draw us into the fellowship of the church. They make us more compassionate and understanding of other people who are going through the same sort of things. They enable us to hold out a hand to other people, just as others in the past have held out a hand to us. And for me, all of this is summed up in that phrase, transforming church, transforming lives, which is why we've taken that phrase as a strapline and as a strategy and as a vision for all the couple of hundred churches or so in the Diocese of Guildford, from Egham to Dorking, from Cranley to Aldershot, from big urban churches like this one to small rural churches like East Clandon, where I found myself this morning. What we are about as the Church of England in this patch of countryside, which is called the Diocese of Guildford, that consists of most of Surrey and chunks of northeast Hampshire with little bits of Sussex and greater London thrown in for good measure, what we are all about is transformation, transformed lives, transforming the society around us. It is both as radical and as simple as that. Now, to fulfill any vision of this kind is going to mean much more than human planning, just as no amount of human planning could have set up the day of Pentecost. That's why we held a series of prayer meetings around the diocese, which, while we developed the initiative, as well as listening to the views of more than 1,500 people as to where they were seeing God at work and what was getting in the way. Do you know the two biggest things that people said were getting in the way? First of all was a low level of Christian discipleship, and the second was a lack of boldness in proclaiming the Christian faith. The third one was we're not praying enough. Those three things were identified across the diocese as major areas that we need to do work on, that we need to work forward on. We're planning to hold a big youth worship and prayer event at Guildford Cathedral to give this a further boost on the evening of Pentecost Sunday next year. And the results have been a commitment to 12 goals, of which the first two are the most significant. The first one goes like this. For every parish and chaplaincy to develop an appropriate strategy for making prayerful, confident disciples in daily life. Discipleship. And the second one goes like this. Together to increase the number of new Christians of all ages through persistent prayer, confident faith sharing, life-giving worship, and the development of 100 new worshipping communities by 2027. And do as I say, check out the longer version of that video, which shows some of those new worshipping communities that are already bubbling up around the diocese. You'll find, as I say, on YouTube or on the Diocese of Guildford website. Now, it is not easy turning a tanker around. And too often in the past, we have settled for second best as a church and a diocese, just trying to keep the show on the road and to manage a gentle decline, looking perhaps to entertain people more than to transform them. Even now, you and I can settle for low levels of Christian discipleship so that our ambitions and our lifestyle choices don't really look a whole lot different than if we weren't followers of Christ. But meanwhile, God is at work. And the more that we can sing that hymn from the heart, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart, and mean it, the more we can be in tune with the work of God's Holy Spirit, the more we can step out in courage and boldness and faith, the more we will be excited, sometimes dazzled, with what God can do in us and through us. 
I'm sure Peter was dazzled when he finally went to bed at the end of the day of Pentecost. He was dazzled at the way that Jesus had chosen him in the first place, recognizing potential in him that no one had seen before. He was dazzled by the experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit and of worshiping and praising God with a freedom and a joy that he'd never known before. He was dazzled at that newfound courage which seemed a million miles away from the Peter who had denied his master just seven weeks before. He was dazzled by the sheer wonder of what he had seen that day, 3,000 people stepping down into the water of baptism and recognizing that he, Peter, had played something, a small part in what had gone on. He was dazzled at the fulfillment of Jesus' words to him that he would become a fisher of people and the rock on which Jesus would build his church. In the quiet of the night, following that momentous day, I'm sure Peter would have heard his master speaking those words to him, well done, good and faithful servant. And you and me too are called to that same spirit-filled worship, that same spirit-inspired courage, that same commitment to evangelism, that same vision of transformation that drove Peter from Pentecost onwards. We are called to pray for God's transforming work within us, so that we might be agents of his transformation to the world around us. That means giving up our small ambitions and dreaming big, bigger perhaps, than we've ever allowed ourselves to dream before. It means asking the Christian question, how can my life make the biggest, most amazing difference in the 10 or 40 or 70 years that I have left here on earth? rather than the sorry question, how can I best feather my own nest? Because nest featherers will come, and nest featherers will go, but it's only those who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness that will truly be fulfilled, loved, fruitful, and honored in this world and in the next. Shall we pray?